was slinging puns at a B&B &B when he had an epiphany. And they complained about time too, about not playing D&D. &D. It was free to all, and I heard him say, he bought my borderlands. But just sit back and let Spencer do his trick, cause you're incapable AMs. Hello, my name's Spencer, aka Free Thrall. Welcome to Keep Off the Borderlands. In this episode, um, well, I'm not entirely sure what's in this episode because this is the first bit I'm recording. Well, no, tell a lie. The other week, I went to see The Northman and I've recorded a few thoughts on that that I'm going to uh, put into this episode somewhere. Um, I'm also probably going to talk a little bit about soloing because I picked up the GM's solo guide. No, is that right? What's it called? The Solo Game Master's Guide by Geek Gamers. That's put out by Modifius. You get the PDF as soon as you order it. And I've been reading through that and really enjoying that. So I'm going to share my thoughts on that. Also, that led to me going back to continue a little bit of an Into the Odd solo play that I did many moons ago. I may share some of that with you, but at this stage, I'm not 100% sure what's going to be in the episode. I do love a mystery. Having said that, I am a creature of habit, so I've got a couple of messages. Apologies to those that have sent me those messages because I've taken far too long to respond to them. I do tend to listen to messages when I receive them. Once I find a bit of quiet time, I will then re-listen to the message and uh, respond accordingly. So let's get on with that, shall we? Yo, Spencer, so some more prisoner talk. I had no idea that uh, Patrick McEwen, I forget his last name, I suck, <laughs> actually wrote the show or came up with the show as well as starred in it. That dude is a super boss. You also mentioned that if you live in a city, it's hard to get away from CCTV cameras. Absolutely true, unless you can't see, because if you can't see a thing, it is not there because object permanence is bullshit. <laughs> But anyway, dude, there's this like apartment complex by my house. Anytime anyone walks by it on the sidewalk, not even close to the apartment complex itself, but just on the sidewalk, this recording kicks in from up somewhere, like three stories up or something. It's just like, hello, you are now being recorded. Anytime anyone walks by, it's the most annoying thing. I give it the bird every time. And yeah, man. You know, you mentioned that if I was a number, I'd be number one. No way, man. I'd be 69. Peace out. Hey, Joe Richter there of Hindsightless, sticking it to object permanence. I'm sure Bishop Berkeley would be proud, although perhaps not so proud of you flipping the bird or invoking the lewdest of numbers. Although, who am I kidding? I bet he had hours of fun sitting up late after Evensong trying to spell boobies on his abacus. What am I talking about? 
I don't know. Let's move on. Thanks, Joe. Although before we do move on, um, I went back and listened to a bit of the previous episode just because it's been so long since I've recorded anything. And um, I realised I give very little context to the messages because, you know, they're often referring to things from the previous episode, maybe further back. Any new listeners stumbling across the podcast may... uh, Well, that may lead them to check out my back catalogue, but for those of you who haven't got time for that, I just want to add a bit more context, I guess. And uh, Joe was referring to Prisoner because in the previous episode, or perhaps the one before that, actually, thinking about it, I took a look at Be Seeing You, which was a Kickstarter I backed, which arrived as a nice colourful little book with some uh, uh, supplementary kind of pamphlets, which is uh, GMless and Diceless, a narrative game based on the 1960s TV series, I think it was 67, is it? 66, 67. It was a British TV series called The Prisoner. And yeah, it's all about a government agent who tries to retire and finds himself waking up in a bizarre village that he can't escape from. So yeah, that's what Joe was talking about there. And it turns out Patrick McGowan, the, the guy who starred in it, also wrote it, which was news to me. So given how rambly it felt like that little... <laughs> me, me attempting to add context there, I wonder if I should continue to uh, waffle on like that or maybe leave it a mystery. What say you, Jason? Hey, Spencer, great episode. As far as Monster Club, yeah, check that out. It is England, M1. I I threw Highway in there because as American, I default. You know, I would say the same thing, Autobahn, Highway, and I know, you know, Highway is now part of the name of the Autobahn. As far as 2400 or, you know, 24XX, that's something that Froth used to talk about over on Thought Eater near the end of that show's time, and he was really taken by that system, if I remember correctly, so... I just went to drive through and bought it and look forward to looking through it. I always meant to buy it after Froth talked about it, never got around to it, so I'm glad you brought it up again. Thank you, sir. Great episode, as always, and I look forward to your next one. Take care. Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast there, and yeah, don't worry about the whole M1 highway thing. That's just me being pedantic, or more likely trying to be funny and failing. But as for Jason Tochi's 2400 or 24XX system, the 24XX is the SRD version of the rules. And yeah, I believe it probably was Froth, Jeremy Frothsoft Smith, who brought Jason Tochi's work to my attention, thinking back, no doubt featuring on one of his great Hump Day Bloggerama episodes. And what drew me back to that system was that Jason himself, uh, Jason Tochi, that is, has been revisiting and kind of refining those rules. He's got a really interesting blog called um, Pretendo Games. I think it's pretendo.games. I'll put a link to that 
blog in the episode notes. Um, yeah, he's been doing daily blog posts over the past couple of weeks, going back and looking at each supplement that he's put out for that system, going into designing them and the intentions he had in kind of putting the system out in this manner, just as a series of very small pamphlets. But he has alluded to the fact that he's quite possibly going to be compiling all this stuff into a book, and I would very much like to see that come to fruition. Now, to add a little context there, Jason was referring to me talking about the M1 when I was discussing Lost Eons, which is a game set in the far future. It's post-human, and you emerge from some subterranean society. You find yourself in the middle of the East Midlands, which is where the M1 is. Now, the, the film Jason suggested there was a British horror anthology portmanteau-type movie. One of the sections takes place on or, or just off of the M1. Am I boring you? Please tell me if you need this much context, or maybe I should just move on. Thanks very much for that call, Jason. Uh, next up, I think I've got a message from James A. Schroll of the Subclass Act podcast. Hey, Spencer, take two. Anchor is being difficult for me. For some reason, I can't use the app version, so I'm using the browser. Anyways, I'm really excited that you're looking at 2400. I think uh, it it deserves a lot more attention than it gets. I think it's one of the best deals in gaming, frankly, especially for one-shots and shorter stuff. Uh, and I, I've actually thought for a while that it'd be right up your alley um, like with things like Vagelwood and um, and uh, Ossia. So I, I figured that you would appreciate it. I, I think it shows how you can take something really simple and fiction first and get a lot of flavor out of the tables. Um, and for me, I, I borrowed from it heavily for um, Nova's Nebulae and uh, I have Eridor uh, for my own games. I think it really distills what the FKR kind of is about um, without... Yeah, without just saying, oh yeah, just roll two d six and you decide what happens. I think it's really, I think it's really, really good at showing how light games like that can work out. Anyways, thanks, Spencer. Thank you, James. And um, sounds like another person there being messed around by the Anchor app. I have to leave all my messages via the browser on my phone because yeah, the app just doesn't have that functionality anymore. So absolutely useless apart from me using it to receive messages. But how long it will continue to do that is anybody's guess. Anyway, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, James. Thanks for calling in. And thank you so much for name-dropping my stuff there. James has got infinitely better stuff on his itch page, Novas and Nebulae in particular. And he recently released... Um, Eye of Erendor, a rules-like fantasy game, which I really need to take a proper look at. But yes, I, I'd certainly been inspired to do my own stuff off the back of, well, what James does, as well as Jason Tockey's stuff. In fact, I put one of my projects on hold because I felt that what Jason Tockey had already done 
it kind of covered the ground. Although looking at it, I think what I was doing added something a little different. I was I was trying to put together a setting inspired by both Roadside Picnic and the Southern Reach trilogy. But I think what I was doing was more influenced by the Southern Reach trilogy and incorporating elements of Lovecraft's Colour Out of Space. And so, yes, it's quite possible I'm going to go back to that one. And that's called Terraformed. And um, it is available, but it's an unfinished, you know, it's a work in progress. Uh, Yeah, but that's enough about my stuff. Back to um, Jason Tucky's 2400. Yeah, really, really interesting what he's doing there. Each of those supplements has a bunch of random tables in there that can be used for creating all kinds of stuff from alien species, alien artifacts, spaceships, planets. And he also released a, a fantasy supplement as well. And yeah, is very much influenced by the FKR. And um, yeah, I really like his his take on it. Certainly the removal of hit points, the combat having far more of a narrative element to it. Yeah, that has been something that I'm particularly interested in. But yeah, thank you very much for uh, getting in touch, James. Really appreciate the call. Cheers. Now, I should also point out that James Schroll's podcast, uh, Subclass Act, is a solo play podcast. Very enjoyable. I particularly like the the fact that he goes into details about what sources and rules he's using. And uh, yeah, that is well worth checking out. Really nicely produced solo actual play. And on the subject of solo plays... That's what I'm going to be talking about next. So, I finally, finally, <laughs> not a good start, not a real word. I finally found some time for myself and a little bit of peace and quiet. Where I can uh, make some headway into putting together this episode. And what more apt a subject to talk about than solo play. Having said that, although on average I'm playing in a group game once, sometimes twice a week, it seems even more difficult to find time to solo play. I realise that doesn't make a lot of logical sense, but At least with a group game, I can put the time in the diary and I can make the necessary arrangements, make myself available. When it comes to playing solo, for me, it's a series of false starts. And this is one of the reasons why I picked up Geek Gamers Solo Game Master's Guide. If you're not familiar with Geek Gamers, They have a YouTube channel that focuses solely on solo play, primarily reviewing different material available for the solo player, but not not just solo play stuff. They cover a variety of different systems, largely 
games designed for group play combined with tools and tips on how to use those resources for solo play. So the book, uh, Solo Game Master's Guide, is being put out by Modifius. It's a pre-order, so I'm expecting a print copy soon, but I got the PDF immediately, and it's just really nicely written, a pleasure to read. I would much rather read a physical book than a PDF, but uh, there was just something about how this is presented and written that just drew me in almost immediately. So to give you an overview, there's a nice little introduction. And I've read stuff covering solo tips. In fact, there's a really good book put out by Parts Per Million. A very, very light read, essentially a series of tips for solo play. Um, the, The... title of that escapes me at the moment but i will put a link to it in the description that's easier solo play by peter rudin burgess of parts per million limited who produce a host of helpful solo tools for a wide variety of systems excuse me so yeah just looking for the contents uh, the first chapter is kind of an overview of what is solo role playing, how to have the right mindset. And uh, what I like about the way this is put forward is it's not kind of one size fits all. They look at a variety of different ways to approach solo gaming. And what I find interesting is that I shy away from journaling games. By and large, uh, I'm more interested in playing something that's structured more like a group game. But having said that, when I've attempted that using Into the Odd, it's kind of turned into a writing exercise. And I'll explore that a little later on in the episode. When I attempted a bit more solo with that system. So and that kind of, that surprises me. The fact that I claim not to want to play a journaling game, but then end up turning the solo session into a writing exercise. So I'm not entirely sure what that's about. Another thing the book emphasises is the fact that everything is play. Even if you're just creating characters and not doing anything with them, simply the act of sitting and leafing through a rule set can constitute play. And I think that's, you know, regardless of what your opinion is of that idea, it certainly strikes me as a helpful way to think about it. So she goes over a variety of different approaches to solo play, as I said. One thing that really jumped out at me that I know she's touched on in the in the YouTube videos, but for whatever reason, I didn't really pick up on it. And that is that there's a tendency to want to start by creating characters. That's not necessarily the best way to start. And that's the way I feel that I approach it. I will look at a rule set, think, oh, that might be fun to create some characters. And then think, oh, maybe I could solo with these. But by doing that, 
you're creating characters in isolation and it can be very difficult to get beyond the character creation process. What she suggests is to focus on the world, first of all, to focus on as much of what you want to do before you create the character. So think about the setting, think about the situation, even creating items, uh, maybe something the character would be looking for or something the character already possesses. Not necessarily, you know, legendary items, just things with a bit of a backstory, keepsake, you know, trinkets, that kind of stuff. And only then, once you've thought about what kind of game you want to play, what kind of motivations your character might have, only then create the character. Because then you are dropping them into a situation, into a setting a world that already has a life of its own to a certain extent and the character is the missing piece to that rather than the the other way around i tend to favor rules that start off with character creation because you know i suppose creating the character is the bit that i enjoy as a player but i should be thinking like a gm here and having maybe more focus upon the world that that character is going to be dropped into so i mean that all makes sense i mean it all makes logical sense to me but not necessarily something that um i perceived as a stumbling block and um yeah throughout the book as i say she doesn't focus on stuff designed for solo she touches on things like the um the mythic engine GM emulator and Iron Sworn. But what I like is that she tends to favor lighter rules. So she will generally use a very simple oracle, you know, a kind of a yes and, yes, yes, but, no, but, no, and, and using other things for prompts like um, cards that you would get with a game or maybe something like a pack of tarot cards and also using literature for prompts, kind of getting a handful of dice, rolling up a page and then just scanning down the page, looking for something that might leap out at you to suggest maybe a starting situation just to get the ball rolling, stuff like that. So she looks at that, she goes through the process of starting a solo session using several systems uh, kevin crawford's scarlet heroes uh, mutant crawl classics um, icrpg index card rpg amongst other things what's also in this book is quite an extensive appendices that suggests further reading there's also a selection of paragraphs taken from a variety of different fantasy fiction books presented as a, as a random table for prompts. There's a whole bunch of random tables in here taken from a variety of sources. And I, I just think this is a really useful book. And not just for the solo player. I think any GM might get something out of this. Just really nice book that 
prompted me to return to a solo session that I did a while back with Into the Odd. And that is what I'm going to talk about next. So way, way back in episode 16, I think we're alone now. I sat down with Into the Odd uh, for a bit of solo play. So I rolled up her character, Lester Finch, who was a uh, essentially a failed writer. Uh, it was an embarrassment to his family. He was uh, behind on his rent and he wanted to just basically get out of the city under the, the sort of pretense of, uh, you know, looking for some inspiration and adventure. And uh, I rolled up like a retainer who uh, was a bare-knuckle boxer, I believe, called Budgie. And, um, yeah, so had them set off trying to make it out of the city, and I rolled up a few encounters. Um, and Budgie was actually taken out on the second encounter. He was attacked by a crawling carapace, which uh, fatally wounded him. Um, I believe it bit into his neck. And Lester, I'm not sure whether he, he fought on and killed the creature or just cut his losses and made a break for it. I should have gone back and looked through that, shouldn't I? Anyway, the episode's there, if you want to give it a listen. But sh shortly after... Um, Losing his companion, Lester then had another encounter where he found a boy called uh, Pip Pickwick who was in combat with a couple of gang members. He'd wandered onto their territory and uh, yeah, he was uh, yeah in a bit of a situation. Lester was able to help him. Uh, they escaped. They boarded a barge, which was something that Budgie had prearranged. Bob Spork uh, promised them free passage out of the city. There's lots of red tape and paperwork and stuff like that. The mate's coming and going. Very difficult. So they boarded the barge and he took them out of the city. And that was essentially where we left them. So reading the solo Game Master's Guide caused me to revisit those characters because ever since then they've lived in my head free of charge as they say um no they don't say that it's lived in your head rent free you fool yeah so i sat down with the intention of seeing what they got up to next when I sat down, the first thing I did was uh, roll up an antagonist and I used Electric Bastion Land to do this. And I came up with a living experiment named Feldspar, a former prospector believed to have died in a mining accident deep in the underground, left to the mercy of the machines. And they are quite proud of what they made from his broken body. Um, so he's got a crutch d6 bulky item a saliva that burns through metal and can only be roused from critical damage with a jolt of electricity so I figured that um, because he's got this corrosive 
that he would be made from uh, something like porcelain, partially. In brackets, I put, uh, think Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood crossed with a crippled xenomorph. Uh, I also created a lackey, a debt squeezer. Oh, I haven't thought up a name for him. Uh, let's call him Doric. And he has a axe D6 bulky. I also created some legendary arcana called the Prognostical. Now, I haven't fully decided what the nature of this item is, only that it's believed to be a device for looking into the future. But as I say, this turned into another writing exercise. So rather than me sharing an actual play with you, I'm going to essentially read what I wrote. So we left Lester and Pip trying to get themselves comfortable settled down to sleep on the barge. Spork pulls back the canvas sheet covering his sleepy passengers. They both stretch, adjusting their clothes, dazzled by the morning haze. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask both of you good sirs to get out of here. I can't be seen ferrying folk out of the city. I'll lose my licence. Spork steers the barge close to the north bank of the Slorry, the great river that flows out of Bastion. Pip is the first to his feet. North across the marshes, before long you'll reach the black track. Head east to the sullied siren. Good luck. Thank you kindly, Bob, says Pip, and jumps a small distance from the barge to the bank, steadying himself. His eyes now accustomed to the morning light, he looks back west towards Bastion, across the pale marsh mist. This is the first time he has looked upon the city from the outside, a perplexing, convoluted mass rising triumphantly out of its own suffocating smog. Pip's head is immediately filled with thoughts of Amelia and how he might delight her with tales of the adventures that await him. A little less gainly, Lester clambers up the bank behind him, straightening his back before adjusting his sleeves and coat, flaring his nostrils to take in air as though deeply inhaling with confidence for the very first time, regretting it almost immediately as he is hit by the sickly, pungent odour of the surrounding wetlands. He wretches momentarily, shakes his head and still blinking looks towards the same horizon as he regains his focus. Ah, Bastion, it floats like an apparition, yet it is I who feels like the ghost. Pleased with himself, Lester begins searching for his pen and notebook, but finds neither. He looks at the ground around him, momentarily vexed, then to the barge as it continues on its way, soon to be swallowed by the morning mist. A wry smile creeps across his face. No matter... More wondrous vistas await us, lad, he says, slapping a hand on Pip's shoulder assuredly. Cut to our hapless heroes, battered by heavy rain as they trudge through boggy marshland. Pip leading the way, Lester still firmly clasping his shoulder, his other hand holding the brim of his capitaine hat 
down over his face, a futile attempt to shelter from the elements. Suddenly Pip stops, Lester bumping into him, both of them stumble forward. Pip holds a finger up to his lips, mouths the word, look, and indicates into the mist ahead. Lester, squinting, can just make out the shape of a large, ungular, apparently grazing. It lifts its head and turns to face them. At that very moment the rain stops and an eerie silence fills the air. Before them stands a great stag-like creature, larger than a horse, completely black in colour, with huge gleaming antlers, warped and twisted in ways impossible to comprehend. This was no ordinary beast, its eyes glowing. Both men feel as if the creature is staring directly into their souls, their initial awe transforming into a deep desire to possess this creature's mysterious power. Suddenly, the beast is distracted. It turns its gaze away, leaps into the mist, and is gone. Both witnesses hear the word, Fools! echo around them. Standing shocked, they slowly turn to each other, quietly acknowledging a shared sense of great loss. As quickly as it had stopped, the rain returns with renewed vigour. Lester looks to the heavens and breathes a heavy sigh. Without a word, the companions continue on their way. Now that was an encounter that I rolled up using some tables from Into the Weird and Wild from Feral Indie Studios. A Kickstarter I backed for the, the second edition that was... Um, Something I, I backed on PDF, but I wish I'd picked up the physical copy, to be honest, as it, um, it's a really, really nice book. So I, I was hoping to get a bit further with that, but um, unfortunately I was interrupted. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope to return to that sometime soon. Me and Nyla, I should say, my wife and I, we got to go out on a date night, which is the first time we've been able to do something like that in a very long time. Went out for a nice meal and went to watch The Northman, which we both uh, thoroughly enjoyed. Enjoyed the right word? Well, and we had a great time. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I don't want to get into any spoilers, although... Jason Connolly, I know you've seen it already. I know we may differ slightly on what constitutes a spoiler. But um, yeah, I, I want to talk about my impressions of the film rather than going to any details about the story, although it is a, a pretty straightforward revenge tale. But um, it's the, the world building. Uh, I mean, all the performances are great. Everybody in it. It's fantastic, but it's it, it's the world building, and they've gone to a lot of effort to incorporate as much of the kind of uh, the archaeological facts of that that era. You know the stuff we know, and also the the writings, the the mythology of that time, and combining that stuff together and filling in the 
the blanks. And I, I want to talk specifically about how magic is handled in this film. There's talk of magic and we see ceremonies, rituals um, that are done to bring about, you know, desired outcomes. And um, we, we sort of see the effects of the magic from the perspectives of the character. Um, but it's kind of left open to the audience as to, you know, whether there is actually anything going on there. And I think it really nails what I was trying to express when I uh, did a few episodes about alluvial planes and how I felt magic should operate in that game. And I will I'll put a link to those particular episodes in the in the show notes. It was really interesting how you see the ceremony, these rituals, you see the visions that the individuals are having, and then you you're sort of shown the reality of what occurs after that, and it's and it's very much left open to interpretation as to, to how real that magic is to to you as a viewer and it but it's very real to the individuals involved and, and there there are particular moments where the the main character looks to they seem to be guided by certain animals that he uh encounters and i just thought it was it was very interesting the way that it mixed those elements of myth and religion with the sort of the you know the facts that we know about life at that time or you know what we can infer it's a very brutal watch uh, there's there was moments in the film where i i was sitting there this particular instance where something happens and i thought wow that's awesome and then you get to see berserkers raiding a village and it it was very difficult to watch. I was kind of sitting there after thinking how awesome it looked. I almost immediately was thinking to myself, why am I sitting here watching this? This is horrific. You know, what, what, am, I, what am I doing to myself? Putting myself through this. Why is this being shown to me? But it, it, it really... Um, I think it's important in the context of the story to see and kind of feel that the brutality of life at that time. And, you know, when I say brutality, I'm not just talking about the violence. I'm talking about the harshness of living. Um, but, yeah, a lot of, lot of really, really interesting stuff there. I know uh, the director... Robert Eggers has kind of said that um, he set out to make the definitive Viking movie. Um, in, in a lot of ways, it's Eggers' most sort of conventional film in the sense that it's... Uh, well, if you imagine, say, the people who made Braveheart and bothered to do their history homework, um, that's kind of what we're getting here. Because, because it is... 
a big budget movie and it's quite remarkable that um, a director like Robert Eggers who's created some very interesting movie-going experiences with The Witch and The Lighthouse uh, that he's been given, what, $100 million to make this thing? Insane, because it's never going to make that money back. But and I guess that influences perhaps the more conventional nature of the story, you know, it being pitched as, a, as an epic tale in a more, more traditional sense. But, yeah, if I talk anymore, I, I am going to spoil it. So I'll leave it there. I'll, I would say that it's uh, recommended viewing, but it is a tough watch in the, the sense that it's a very gritty, gruelling portrayal of life in the 9th century, I believe it is. But yeah, great stuff. I watched another film recently, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, a kind of a low-budget indie film, although you wouldn't necessarily think that by watching it because it is a very, well, it's got a lot going on in it. A very quirky comedy drama. That I don't want to say too much about it. I don't want to give away any spoilers for anybody who's interested in watching it. And if you are familiar with it, you probably already know too much. If you've seen it, you don't want to listen to me trying to explain it, but um, it's essentially about a relationship. It's, it's kind of a family drama on, on one level, but it's uh, quite uncategorizable because it goes off in all kinds of crazy directions. I just really, really enjoyed it. And I think it's kind of screaming out to have an RPG based on the based on the world in which it takes place, shall we say. But um, yeah, it's certainly got some cogs turning in my head. Directed by Dan Quan and Daniel Sinert, or Sinert. I believe they've only directed one film prior to this called Swiss Army Man. Uh, itself a very quirky comedy about a guy shipwrecked on an island who kind of befriends a dead body uh, starring uh, Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe, which uh, I haven't seen myself, but I may go and check it out on the strength of how much I enjoyed everything, everywhere, all at once. You may have noticed that this is episode 199 uh, I don't really have anything special planned for episode 200, mainly because I don't really want to draw attention to the fact that it's taken me so long, so long. <laughs> it's, it feels like it's taken me so much longer than anyone else to reach uh, this particular milestone. But I was wondering if uh, anybody wanted to ask me any questions about anything whatsoever, not necessarily RPG related, just, you know, if there's anything at all you ever wanted to ask me about, I'm quite willing to um, answer those questions. 
And um, yeah, I'm not very good at this whole self-promotion thing, but you might also maybe want to rate or review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. It's the first time I've ever asked anybody to do anything like that. But um, yeah, feedback would be welcome. Cheers. Well, that's about enough from me, I think. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for your calls. If you want to leave me a message, please contact me via the anchor link in the description. You can always email me or leave me an audio message at spencer.freeforall at gmail.com. There's a Facebook page for Keep Off The Borderlands. You can find me on Twitter and MeWe on the Audio Dungeon Discord and various other places on Discord as Free Thrall. I'd also like to thank TJ Drennan for the wonderful music he provides. And it just remains for me to say, take it away, TJ. Warning, if celebrating the sound of dice hitting the table and pondering the meaning of the many acronyms within your player's handbook doesn't cure that burning sensation, please see your doctor.